Hello and welcome to Pictorial, a podcast where two people who did not go to art school learn about something really cool in art history and then share it with you. So I'm Quinn Rose. I am really excited about this week's episode. I love learning about artists in history who I feel like, I don't know, I should have learned about in school, but since I can only name about maybe 10 fine artists on the top of my head, I don't know any of them. So I'm really excited about this person. Hi, I'm Betty. Um, I'm also someone who's very excited to learn about all kinds of different and interesting things uh, in art history that, again, I feel like I should should have known or should have learned about. Um, and I feel really bad, actually. I realized um, while researching for this artist that I do actually know who her husband is, but I did know who she was. But now I kind of find her much more interesting. Uh, so I'm kind of I'm glad to delve into this one. Oh, I'm intrigued to hear more about that. So today we are talking about an artist called uh, Sonia Delune. She is a Ukrainian Jewish born artist um, who was raised in Russia and then lived out most of her life in Paris with brief stints living in other European countries. Uh, so her last name, Delaunay, is French um, from her French husband, but she was born... Well, actually... Yeah, I, I came across like three different versions of her name. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you came across the same thing. Yeah, so she was born in 1885, like I said, in Ukraine, um, which was part of the Russian Empire. And so she was born as Sarah Stern, which actually is like a super chill name, which is funny. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But then she ended up, her parents were, uh, did not have a lot of money, and she ended up being raised by her uncle in uh, Russia. And she was never legally adopted by him, but she did take on his last name and kind of considered her aunt and uncle her her parents um, since she was raised by them for most of her life. And so then she went by uh, Sonia Turk um, until she took on her um, husband's name, uh, which then she was known by for the rest of her life and sort of like in the history books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I realized, um, so I, I have heard of Robert Delaunay before, and um, I think, I, the, I can't remember where it was, where I saw um, this painting, but it's a painting called uh, Champ de Mars, La Tour Rouge. Uh, so it's a painting basically of the Eiffel Tower, and it's in the uh, Art Institute of Chicago. So oh. I feel like which you can go see. Uh, so I feel like that may have been where I f uh, saw it, but I, it also could have been because we had a futurism exhibition here in Toronto uh, maybe like four or five years ago, and I distinctly remember seeing like this fragmented red Eiffel Tower picture, so I might have seen it there, uh, but that's kind of how I knew about him, which is like he was kind of loosely associated with the futurist, futurism movement, so uh, yeah, that's kind of where I knew him from, um, but we can, and later we'll talk about kind of like her, uh, uh, him, and uh, Sonia, they ended up kind of founding their own art movement uh, later on, so... Yeah, I had never heard of either of them, or at least I couldn't, like, their names did not ring a bell. I'm sure I've seen their art in places, either, like, in a museum or in just pictures of them somewhere, because they, turns out, 
very successful. Who knew? Not me. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I only realized like I knew him when I started researching and I'm like, oh, my God, I have seen these paintings before. And then I was like, oh, yeah, like I saw him in like this exhibition. So, yeah, it was like I wasn't like super familiar with uh, Robert Delaunay's paintings either. Well, we'll get into their art movement in a moment because it's a huge part of her sort of body of work. But a, a moment for her first husband, which I thought this was a very interesting part of her story. The interesting thing about uh, Sonia Delaunay is she was recognized as artistically gifted at a young age. And since she was being raised by a wealthy Russian family, she had the means to pursue this as a career. And so she went to art school in Germany, and then she moved to Paris afterwards and continued studying art in Paris. Um, And then she spent a lot of time like in the galleries around the city and meeting lots of artists there. Obviously, this is like Paris, especially in the early 1900s was definitely sort of a hot spot for artists. Uh, So there were a lot of people that she brushed elbows with there. And then at part of this, she met a uh, gallery owner whose name was Wilhelm Uday. Ood? I don't know how to say <laughs> yeah, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure how to pronounce that either. Yeah. U-H-D-E. Uh, and so and he was about 10 years older than her. He was gay. And they decided to get married because um, he wanted sort of the safety of having like a publicly heterosexual marriage. And she wanted to stay in France and not have to go back to Russia. So getting married was a pretty easy way to achieve both of those goals. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay. So it seems <laughs> like this was a very sort of like a a good understanding between the two of them from day one. And then a couple years afterwards, she ended up meeting Robert DeLunay, falling in love with him. And um, they immediately basically began a relationship and she was pregnant. Um, And so then she was like, "Uh, hey, Wilhelm, like, I think we should get a divorce and I'm going to marry this guy. And he was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, it seemed I read in a bunch of places that they were both like, okay, yeah, that's cool. Sounds good to me. Like it was very uh, mutually amicable of a divorce that they had. I just I really like that. I mean, obviously, it wasn't great that they had to get married to achieve their goals. Um, because obviously, those are two things that hopefully in today's world that people that you wouldn't feel the need to do um, to like achieve freedom as a young woman, um, or to to live freely as a gay man. But I like that they did in their lives find ways to do that safely with each other. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I thought I found that pretty interesting. And it was pretty interesting how she met uh, her second husband, Robert, uh, I think through uh, Wilhelm Uday, um, because he had a gallery that... uh, that he owned and she was... um, I think she... I believe she had like shown uh, some of her work there too, but then she met, um, yeah, she was introduced to Robert through him. Um, and, you know, then she was like, oh, yeah, I like this guy. <laughs> so <laughs> started her husband over <laughs> moving on yeah. to, yeah. to life partner. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, first husband, for introducing <laughs> to second husband. <laughs> yeah. So she gave birth to their son, Charles, in. January of 1911, which is about two months after they got married. So that's not even a shotgun wedding at that point. Like, you can't even (laughs) pretend that's (laughs) the child was born early. They were just like, yeah, whatever. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. I think she, I guess she was probably like pretty pregnant when they got married. Yeah. Uh, But they were married for, sadly, not their entire lives because she outlived him significantly but uh, they were married until the end of Robert's life and they only, they had one son, Charles. um, And 
seem to have a remarkably happy and stable family home for early 1900s Paris. Yeah, that's true. Um, I read, actually, I read an interesting quote that she had said, um, like after the birth of her son, and she kind of summarized that as sort of like an inspiration of her art. Um, So she said, Uh, In 1911, I had the idea of making for my son, who had just been born, a blanket composed of bits of fabric like those I had seen in the houses of Russian peasants. When it was finished, the arrangement of the pieces of material seemed to me to evoke Cubist conceptions, and then we tried to apply the same process to other objects and paintings. Um, I thought that was like a really great encapsulation of just like her influences and her... um, a a good description of her work, which is like pieces of colorful fabrics. And she's talking about how it's kind of inspired in a bit from her childhood, but also inspired by her family and her son, but also by cubism, which she was totally around at the time. So I thought that was like a really good way to capture her like art style as a whole. Yeah, I want to get really into her whole art practice um, and and whole movement that she co-founded. But just a brief other thing about her background related to the quote you just read, because I've seen that quote in some places where she attributes it to Russian peasants and some places where it's attributed specifically to Ukrainian peasants. And I find it interesting that in some of the sources I was reading about her, they took a moment to say like, but she was always really inspired by her peasant Ukrainian roots. And she always remembered like the colors of that village. um, And that was always part of her work throughout her whole life. There's one thing that was like the Ukrainian sunset is so beautiful that it stuck with her you like ukrainian wedding dresses like all these different things and i am not sure how much of that is romanticization of her as a like very wealthy privileged person for her times to say like but she had these really beautiful peasant roots or if it if that was true and it's just that like people have different levels of acknowledgement of that but i just think that's kind of funny <laughs> but with all of that said let's actually talk about the super cool art movement that she was involved in, which I really like. And and some people call it Orphism and some people call it Simultaneism. Simultaneism? Yeah, I think it's Simultaneism is how I've been saying it. But yeah, I have no idea. Orphism is definitely easier to pronounce. Yes. I also was looking up I was like, why is it called Orphism? And I couldn't find a source for a little while. And then finally, someone actually attributed it. And it is named after Orpheus from Greek mythology. Oh. It was named by, by the way, just, we totally ruined ourselves by doing a French artist. (laughs) Can I just say? (laughs) I was just, I'm so bad at pronouncing French, especially for a Canadian person that I'm going to butcher a lot of these names. Yeah, but I that was, that's more just a pre-warning to everyone as the name I'm about to attempt to say. But the name Orphism was coined by Guillaume Aponier. <laughs> um, Sounds good to me. There'll be a link in the show notes so you can look at his name yourself. Anyway... <laughs> He is, he's, um, by all accounts, was the person who, who named it, named this variation on cubism as orphism because, quote unquote, he felt the use of color brought movement, light, and musical qualities to the artwork and therefore referenced the legendary poet and singer of ancient Greek mythology, Orpheus, which I think is so whimsical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I kind of, um, I liked the term, the simultane- simultaneism as well, because it kind of, 
it sort of is more descriptive, I think, of what the like what the visuals are because it's it's meant to mean simultaneous contrast um which is like so a thing that they do is they match primary and secondary colors together like red and green and yellow and purple or blue and orange um and it creates like it's like not just in works that they do like whenever you see that type of juxtaposition juxtaposition um you see like the colors create like a visual vibration it's almost like a optical illusion uh sort of so yeah so it's kind of either one of these terms define what they're trying to do if you're if you're trying to visualize what this kind of art looks like it's definitely modern art it's a form of cubism but the whole idea of cubism is they're kind of muted colors and a lot of similar colors in one painting whereas the lunes were like no 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 color everywhere mm-hmm. so they use these kinds of ideas of the color theory that you were just talking about with abstract shapes and like lots of I don't even know how to describe it, but but sometimes they'll be like more circular shapes. Sometimes it'll be like fully abstracted, like psychedelic kind of kaleidoscope things. Like if you took a freeze frame on a kaleidoscope, that's what a lot of this would look like. It's um. It also seems like they were most definitely influenced by um, fauvism, which is also an art movement that heavily. Uh, focuses on color Um, but like an interesting thing about fauvism is that um, they sort of like they explore color in uh, unconventional types of ways Um, yeah like especially when I'm looking at uh, some of Robert Delaunay's works is like he has um, he has a self-portrait and like he's not he didn't paint himself in um, like what you would naturally assume would be uh, like the colors of someone's face. So like he's using like um, pinks and greens and uh, purples and like these like colors that you wouldn't think of when you uh, like when you paint someone's face. And so yeah, like uh, a similar image is this painting by Sonia uh, called Yellow Nude. It's kind of it's a painting of this woman like it's a nude woman like her skin is like yellowish but you see these bright blues and like purples and just these like really high contrast really intense colors um like on a person's body that you wouldn't like naturally think of would that would occur on a person's body and her this like yellow nude painting that she did um reminds me actually a lot of Gauguin which is probably someone she I don't know if I like I read somewhere if she's she's definitely inspired by him but I don't know if she met him it's likely like at around this time um but yeah so it just seems like there's definitely this like post-impressionist fauvist influence on their art movement and she also seemed to have like a, a pretty clear progression in terms of her art where she started with more I mean she never was into realism um but more directly representational um like in that in this nude that she painted um whereas more later in her careers things got more and more abstract more and more like what you would imagine as kind of this idea of like very block modern art um is what she was doing later in her career for sure like it's it seems like she yeah she kind of started with more figurative um works and it became more abstract but then it also 
um, like she was also someone who um, I read that like she didn't see a boundary between like the fine arts and craft and or like design and she like I think we'll get into a little bit later that like she also eventually ended up doing like fashion design and textile design and it kind of um like blurred into like a lot of her practices blurred into um like this like yeah like more craft and more um like design type of work yeah let's talk about this so um as you may have noticed from her being born in the late 19th century. She lived through the Great Depression and both world wars. So there was a lot going on that affected her kind of life and career as an artist. Um, Well, actually starting really with the Russian Revolution, um, that kind of ended her source of income from Russia, which I've read in most places was like her family sent her money. I also uh, saw one reference that she owned some property in Russia that she earned income off of. I what, I'm not totally sure if that's completely true or if it's like her family owned property that she was a beneficiary of the profits. Um, but one way or another, she was getting she was being financially supported um, through from Russia. And that kind of ended with the Russian Revolution because um, that's kind of going to choke off income streams. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's when she started really doing this this fashion design. And a big part of this was with World War One right kind of in that same era where the women had taken on so many different roles during world war one and it as the war ended that was reflected in the fashions of the time and it was you know it's the roaring 20s um they're not sticking to the same kind of restrictive fashions before and wouldn't you know it the lunes kind of really bright uh modern styles really translated well to clothes and they translated well to the sensibilities of women trying to buy cool modern clothes at the time yeah um exactly um I kind of I also read that like she designed a lot of clothing that was like very loosely fitting or like billowing and like um it it allowed you to sort of have free movement of your body a lot more so and yeah like definitely after World War One, like women were um like many were in the workforce and are were are totally like I'm not going back to being a housewife or going back inside and not working (laughs) so um yeah like a lot of her clothing was very uh yeah it was just like very easy very comfortable and very uh like loosely fitting that a lot of women were super into and like also you know it it was a like they were colorful and trendy like her her designs really kind of embodied this new woman uh, experience and I think I also read that she was kind of the breadwinner in her household because she was the one who had like the business of doing like textile and um, designs and stuff like that yeah she definitely was because they were both artists and she always claimed that there was never competition between them as mm-hmm. artists and that they were very much like working together and supporting each other which I really hope it's true because that's lovely. Um, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, she's the one who turned to to working in design, to having a very successful fashion business. Um, and so she was definitely bringing in, bring, bringing home the bacon, as they say, <laughs> which is also very cool for the time and probably also helped her image. I mean, if I was a young woman in the 20s wanting to buy modern clothes and I heard there was a primary breadwinner 
woman <laughs> designer selling bright colors down the street, I feel like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and I'm not sure if um, this is how she got into doing um, doing fashion design, but um, it turned out like uh, her and Robert, uh, they were, I think, apparently vacationing in Spain and they just, in like 1914 or something, and they just decided to stay. Um, so they kind of lived in like the Spain, uh, Portugal, like, area for a number of years and in 1917 um there was a play there was a play by uh someone whose name i'm also going to butcher um i think it's sergey diagulev uh he had a production of cleopatra in madrid and her and uh sonia and robert were hired to do the uh, robert did the set design and sonia did the costume design for the play um so yeah she she like so later on she was also known for someone who did a lot of costumes for plays um as well so i'm not sure if like she started off as doing being a costume designer and then moved into just a fashion designer overall or if she did that before but um basically she was doing a lot of textile and costume work by like late 1910s yeah i think they, i think you're right that those kind of went hand in hand um and and then she also like she went on to design for film costumes as well um which is super cool now uh <laughs> after world war one um and then after the whole roaring 20s boom uh the great depression did hit not fun time um and it did her sort of public facing business ended up closing um but she continued being an artist and she continued working with private clients and just sort of like a much smaller scale and i don't know if this is just her optimism or or, or sort of like things looking better in hindsight but she claimed that this was like a freedom for her um, and that she was like, you know what, now I'm not shackled by this this textiles business I have. And now I'm just free to work one on one with clients because I am unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I think, um, yeah, she also like went and took on um, other things. Like I read that she did like illustrations for magazine covers. She did some interior decorating and like doing window displays and things like that during the 30s. So I think like a lot of other people, she was just like, well, I need work because, you know, it's a depression and we have no money. So I'm just going to go do whatever it is that's going to pay me. Um, and she just ended up being this like really diverse um, artist slash designer. She is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. One of the things that struck me while reading about her was that she just, first of all, was very successful, um, which was uncommon uh for a woman at that time um to be so kind of mainstream successful. Uh we'll also get to sort of like her many, many accolades um in a moment, but and of course, she was in a very privileged position and was sort of set up to do this. And it almost reminds me of what we were just talking about on a recent episode. Um, we were talking about postcards because there was a series called Beethoven is a Lesbian, um, which was just sort of poking at this idea that maybe in a world where all people were created equal and given equal opportunities, we might consider the person that we consider the greatest composer of the world could have been a lesbian. Um, and I feel like this, she's almost sort of an example of that is like, she was given opportunities and she was given education and connections and Hey, look, she became a really successful, important artist who co-founded this entire art movement. But it also was just 
struck by her as someone who had such a full, interesting life, who had a stable family, who did art and design and like tried out all of these different things and traveled and just seemed like a really cool person and more real than I think we expect from our historical figures that I was like, oh, even though, I mean, she only, she only passed away in the 1970s um, and she was in her nineties before uh, she died, which is incredible. But even, even still, you kind of think like, oh, someone was born in the 1800s. You can kind of only think about them in black and white. Right. But I'm like, wow, this is a, this is a person. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, yeah. She's kind of, I think like, you know, I was seeing some like earlier photos of her when she was younger and it does look like, you know, some like old black and white photo from like, late 1800s um but then um just sort of like seeing her work and uh, yeah knowing that like she lived until like in i think she probably lived um almost as long or uh, around the same time like i think picasso died in like the 70s as well um like yeah it's just uh, like especially seeing her work and seeing um her art style like she just totally embodies this like contemporary woman um like feel to just her yeah like her life as well as her work um yeah it's yeah it's pretty pretty incredible there's an interview that she did um only a few months before she passed away that you can read online and it's quite great um and one of the things that they he asked her if she's met a bunch of artists and he asked her if she liked Picasso and she said never much Picasso he always looked unhealthy oh yeah I read that too I'm like that's that's pretty awesome (laughs) um uh, I was just actually I was just looking at another work that she did and um I'm trying to figure out figure out so um I'm gonna send you a link but basically she did this um illustration for a poem um and i think it's like multiple pages or or like or but they um uh so i'm again i'm gonna butcher this name so it's la prouse du trans-siberian et de la petite Jehanne de france (laughs) so it's a poem so it's prose of the trans-siberian and little Jehan of france it was done by um the poet blaise sendrars and so like she basically she painted this um like she painted like the words like in in the text as well as like an illustration that stretches I think meters long on the side and um there's like I think I think it's like multiple pages and I read that it's like supposed to if you pile them together it's supposed to reach like 300 feet high if all the if all the um prints of the poems are put from end to end um and apparently that's the height of the Eiffel Tower um but I just thought like it's a really beautiful beautiful and colorful uh way to like illustrate for a poem like when I first heard that's an illustration I was thinking of like oh like little pictures of like people but then no it's these like washes of color um that's like just alongside the text and it's just so interesting how um yeah like she was someone who did like dresses and fashion but then also illustrated for poetry this is gorgeous I love how you can see her work stylistically there are clear themes that go through what everything that she does in terms of how she uses color and yet can she, she can adapt it to all of these different mediums I wonder if she ever used postcards 
<laughs> oh, I don't know. She, she, yeah, that would be awesome if she designed postcards. Um, she did so much. I want to paint a postcard in the style of Sonia de Lune. Oh my god, Ooh, do it. That could be a nice little assignment that we do, and then maybe we'll put it on Instagram. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's make this an official challenge. We should both do one, okay. and then if anyone wants to join in, tag us in your postcards. <laughs> okay, awesome. That yeah, that's awesome. At Pictorial Pod, uh, which we'll mention again later. Um, Get that promo. <laughs> exactly wow i can't believe i didn't know who this person was before because these are all beautiful yeah no i i i feel the same way like there is just a lot uh like so much about her and just about you know like her um her designs and her paintings um so um i think we mentioned earlier uh so she actually or she became uh the first woman to have a retrospective in the louvre yeah it was in 1964 and she was one of the very first living people ever to have a retrospective in the louvre um which is super cool yeah like she was one of these people that i fortunately was like recognized in her lifetime um unlike you know some other impressionist artists like van gogh who you know only sold one painting in his life and lived a very like you know terrible life (laughs) basically but she actually was um recognized um and i think she was also uh she was i think the yeah like she was given like a reception by queen elizabeth in like 1978 or something um and yeah like just definitely had um some recognition in her life yeah she was named an officer in the french legion of honor which as far as i can tell is kind of like being knighted um for french Mm. people so okay like being recognized for extraordinary service in her field i don't know if us not knowing her work is like an us problem if maybe (laughs) she's really big in france but not well not that well known in america because it seems like she's very successful relatively recently or maybe it's one of those things that like again like i just don't think I think that like if I, it would be difficult for me to sit down and really name that many artists, there are obviously like so many more people who made a living or, or achieved a claim than I can personally name. So <laughs> maybe that's just the issue here. But I'm glad I know about her now. Yeah, me too. And well, like I feel like I yeah, I I, sh- I should know of her now, um, just because of working in a art gallery for seven years and like technically being able to name quite a few like contemporary artists but uh still there are people that uh i do not know one thing that i will say going back to what you were talking about at the very beginning about recognizing her uh husband is that i sort of alluded to her husband had died young um and so he passed away in 1941 from cancer and she lived until 1979 um and was buried next to him There are some accounts that she spent a decent amount of her time in her career ensuring his legacy and making sure that he was recognized for his contributions to art and maybe spent less time securing her own. Um, I'm sure that the forces of the universe also helped (laughs) that (laughs) disparity. Um, But as it is, there is, I think, something to that in that she was she knew that she would continue to live and gain publicity and create art um, and so she did make sure that he was also recognized like as a co-founder of this movement and that his art was maintained and everything yeah that's really great to also learn that like she had such a great relationship with her husband and yeah it wasn't like a competition and it wasn't like you know he was more recognized than her or something and she was like it wasn't like she was unhappy about that and that they actually really did have like a good they were just like 
they seem like really good partners who collaborated really well together and who kind of like fed off of each other creatively, most likely. Um, so yeah, it's really great to know that they had such a great relationship. I support them. And I am so glad that we learned about her this week. Yeah, me too. Um, in addition to just how amazing she was, like, um, I did read that there's a lot of people who a lot of other artists later on who kind of attribute their uh, influences uh, towards her. So um, apparently she uh, so like Orphism, it really it uh, influenced later on uh, um, this movement called opt art, which is kind of like optical illusion type of art. Um, so there's like an artist called Bridget Riley who um, uses like similarly um, colors and shapes to create these like vibrations and optical illusions. Um, and then there's also um, uh, artist Paul Klee who attributes like his influences to orphism um, and also like kinetic art. Uh, which is an art movement I mentioned before, they also drew like heavy influences from uh, Orphism as Orphism as well. Um, so yeah, like it's just uh, like her, like she has like a legacy that goes beyond just her work that it definitely uh, continued throughout the uh, 20th century and influenced a lot of other artists. What a boss. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. True unsung hero of, again, I cannot stress this enough, very, very cool art. You know, I feel like sometimes you're learning about uh, famous artists and you, you can appreciate them. But I'm looking at this and I was like, I would love to have one of these pieces in my home. Yeah, no, that's true. They are very beautiful. Like I just um, I really love I actually love um, um, most of the stuff that she did that was influenced by like those like dancers. There's ones that's called Flamenco Dancer. And then there's one uh, that I can't remember the name of, but it's just like a bunch of dancers like dancing, uh, like along this like really long, big, like 12 foot uh, long painting it's probably way too big to f actually fit inside my apartment like I think the length of the painting is probably like three times the length of my apartment <laughs> so I probably can't <laughs> actually have it on my wall but it would be great <laughs> to have it let's crowdfund a bigger apartment and the art <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly well with all of that thank you so much for listening to this episode and learning about Sonia Delune with us um please I mean feel free to tell us all the names that we pronounce wrong but be gentle with us at least we're <laughs> self-aware <laughs> yeah if you want to follow the show, you can do that on Twitter, Instagram, at PictorialPod, where we do post pictures of all of these images that we have talked about. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, at AspiringRobotFM. And you can follow me at on Twitter and Instagram at ArticulationsV, and I am also on YouTube at Articulations. And if you have any topic that you think would be good for us to cover on the show, you can also suggest that at the Google form linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening, art enthusiasts.